0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to church. A little organ music kind of gets you in the mood for church, right? It's awesome. <clears throat> Good to see you today. I'm glad you're here. You want to have a little celebration? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to celebrate with all six of you who cooperated with me right there. No, so uh, in case you're a guest, I'm going to bring you up to speed with where we are. And uh, you who are lakesiders and been with us for the last couple of months, at least, you kind of know what we're talking about. But it's, it's a day to celebrate our next 10 journey that we've been on for the last several weeks together. Uh, as a church, we've been on this journey trying to figure out how do we bless the generations that are coming behind us. And particularly, let's, let's focus on the next 10 years and see if we can bless the people o- around us and around the world over the next 10 years. So we put out this thing uh, where we're saying, let's let's give an offering and let's make a commitment to give our offering. So Three weeks ago now, I think it was, we gave our First Fruits offering, and we announced that, you know, I don't know, the next week or something, and you know you know what came in that first week. Today, I want to tell you what our commitments are. We've been collecting those up and collecting those up, and we've been making these commitments. Before I tell you the, the total of those, the, with the consultant we've been working with to help us get this whole project ready, uh, has given us some feedback about these commitments. He said the 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 scope of the number of lakesiders, the percentage of lakesiders who are involved in this process is higher than he's seen in any church he's worked with in the last five years. That's, yeah, it's really, really cool. So I'm very excited about that. So let me, uh, let's put these up here and let you just kind of see. So our total commitments for these projects is just under three and a half million dollars. Like, that's amazing. That's really amazing. And some of you go, yeah, yeah, but I think the goal was $4.5 million. So? I mean, right? I'm like, if we had not set on this journey, we'd be, we wouldn't be at $3.5 million. And who knows what the Lord's going to do over the next three years, right? So it's amazing. Let me show you how this breaks out. So our global impact, the, uh, we are just under a $1 million for that. That fills that whole bucket up, virtually fills the whole bucket up. So that's very good. Yeah, you want to clap for that? That's good. That's like that. Our protege program, there is about half a million dollars in that fund, in in commitments. And so that's, again, you know, our goal was a million dollars for that, but you can train a lot of young people for half a million dollars, right? It's going to be great. And then our uh, ministry freedom debt reduction bucket uh, is $21,000 short of the $2 million we need to pay off the debt on the block, right? Right, it's awesome. I I mean, one of you could just write a check this morning and finish that one up. Okay, just, just kidding, no pressure. So I just think that's amazing. And I, just, I have to tell you, as the one who gets the privilege, or some of you might say the responsibility to stand up in front of the church and to say, here's where we're going, here's what I think God has called us to, let's all get on board on this together. It's a little risky from my perspective, right? Because I can stand up here and do all this stuff, and then you know everyone goes, I don't want to do that. But to be able to say, look, there's a, a huge... Um, portion of Lakesiders who jumped in on this at various levels, you know, and we've got people that have signed up to, to give resources, we've got people who have signed up to pray for us, really amazing, and I just want to say thank you to you for that process that you've been journeying on with us so far, and then I'm looking forward to seeing what God does among us and through us over these next three years, I think it's going to be very, very exciting, and I'm very encouraged by what God's doing among us these days, really, really cool, so thank you for that. Let's have a prayer, and then we're going to look into scripture. Okay. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. You you are always good. You are always amazing. Your grace is always amazing grace. And so thank you for that. Lord, thanks for uh, the generosity you've unleashed through your people here at Lakeside. I pray for everyone who's made a commitment, whatever that commitment looks like, that you would bless them in that journey. And over these next three years, keep your hand on us. Keep your face turned toward us and pour out your blessings on us, Lord. And may we be able to follow through on the commitments we've made so that these um, ministries and programs and projects that we're working on, that they would come to fruition, Lord. Lord, we love you. We want to serve you faithfully in this and in all the other things you call us to. So give us your grace and your blessing, we ask through Jesus. And now as we look into your word, open our hearts to you, and open your heart to us, Lord. Thank you. Amen. All right, so last week we talked about this whole idea of moving from the kids' table to the adult table. And the natural, normal, healthy response of a child is to say, When can I move? Right? No child wants to stay at the kids' table forever. There are adults who want to move back to the kids' table, but mostly children, when they're healthy and normal, things are like, okay, I want to move someday to the adult table. And that's the same with a healthy spiritual life. You start off at the kids' table. You start off immature in your faith, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all start when you're born again. You're born again as an infant in faith. And then at some point you move, or in the, you're in this process of moving toward adulthood spiritually, toward maturity spiritually speaking. And so I've been kind of thinking about that. We're going to take that track a little farther today and talk about some other areas or aspects of spiritual maturity. But I've been thinking about my own childhood a little bit, and, and uh, vacation time is coming up you know, pretty soon. A lot of you guys are probably starting to think about vacations and things. And so I've been thinking about my vacations. And I started thinking about vacations when I grew up. And I, I, I hadn't really thought about it before, but I don't think I stayed in a hotel until I was in college or later. I didn't, my family didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up, and so when we, were, when we went on vacation, we camped. And sometimes we went a little bit of a distance, and sometimes not very much distance at all, but we camped. Sometimes we camped in the backyard. That was vacation for us, you know? And, and that's all cool, but I didn't get to stay in a hotel. It wasn't until I was an adult that I got to stay in some hotels, and I have stayed in a variety of quality of lodging, even in hotels, right? I have stayed in the Jumping Frog Inn, in Angels Camp. You know, I think I think they usually rate like hotels like by stars, you know, four stars, three stars. This is a four-frog hotel. Okay? Like in the room, I'm sure. It's like this was, this was you know not all that cool. And I've stayed in really nice hotels. You know, I've stayed like in, in the Philippines when Donna and I were there and our daughter was born there. My parents, who somehow got money after I left the house, not before, they came over and like, hey, let's stay in the Intercontinental Hotel. Like, yeah, that sounds great. So, you know, I've stayed in this wide array of accommodations. What's really interesting is when you go back to turn your key in or check out or whatever, a question that they very often ask you at the front desk is, how were your accommodations? They want to know, was it nice? Was it comfortable? Did, was the room adequate for you? How were your accommodations? I think that would be a really helpful question for Christ followers to ask themselves. For churches to ask ourselves, how are your accommodations? Now, that doesn't mean anything to you yet, so let me, let me open Scripture up with you. Let's look at Scripture, and then let's just go back and take that question and see if that relates to what we're talking about. If you have your Bible with you, why don't you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're making our way these days through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's a group of Christians who lived in this town of Corinth, about 50 miles west of Athens. And uh, Paul, they had a lot of trouble in their church, and Paul was writing to kind of address some of these issues that they were facing in their church. And so we're going to read today a couple different passages, but we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you were proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Paul says the Corinthians were accommodating sexual immorality. There was a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. Now, besides all the other things you might say about that, that kind of raises the creep factor. You know, it's like, ew. But that's going on. And the church was accommodating that. They were, in fact, boasting about it. Churches boast. I mean, some, some, you ever heard churches boast? Do you ever brag about your church? Good, I you good, that's awesome. Churches boast, right? It's like, you know, and I, okay, it's probably arrogant or those kind of things, but sometimes church, you know, people from a church, they'll go like, we have the best children's ministry in our church in the whole world, right? So we do, right? So, I don't know. So, I mean, right, or we have the best worship music in the whole world, right? Or, or we have the tallest pastor in the whole world, if you care about that kind of stuff, you know, so. So sometimes Christians boast, well, here's this church in Corinth, and they're boasting about sin in their church. They were accommodating it. They're like, our church accommodates sin. Somehow they had become intrigued by this guy and his sin and the fact that they were having grace toward him. And they were boasting about it. You have to know this. When sin intrigues you, death is stalking you. We, we play pretty casually with sin sometimes. We neglect the idea that a little yeast leavens a whole lump of dough. And we play sort of casually with sin sometimes. When sin intrigues you, which is what temptation is, when sin intrigues you, death is stalking you, Because sin kills everything it touches. One of the challenges in our culture is we've forgotten that. One of the challenges in church culture is we've forgotten that. And it affects us and then it infects us and then it kills us. In the 1940s, there was a, or 40s or 50s, there was a uh, national ad campaign that came out. It's amazing to me. National secular ad campaign came out. I don't even know what they were marketing, you know, which doesn't make it a very good ad campaign, but it's lasted in, in some memory. The ad campaign used this as their theme. They said, There are three things that people get used to in this world. And I'm like, Well, there's probably a lot of things that people get used to, but they said, There's three things that people get used to in this world new car styles. Mm hmm, Studebaker. Uh, Ladies' hats and sin. Some of you think that lady's hat is sin, but that's a different story. It says here's a national secular ad campaign. Three things people get used to cars, and hats, and sin. And they're out in the world and they're like, hey, this is what we get used to. And they're right on the nose. We get used to it. And then we get comfortable with it because we accommodate it. We make room for it, we make allowances for it. And then it kills us. The Corinthians were boasting about this man who was sleeping with his stepmother. They were making room for him. They were adapting to him. They said, we have have grace. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to have grace. And they were accommodating this man. It's a misapplication of grace. It's weird because church is all about grace. I mean, Lakeside Church, I think it's all about grace. It's all about this, this idea that by grace we have been saved through faith. And that, not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. It's grace. We sing, this is amazing grace. We go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's all about grace. But grace can be misapplied. Grace is not the power to overlook sin. Grace is the capacity to restore those who have been ravaged by sin. Grace is the capacity to heal those who have been broken by sin. That's what grace is. Grace calls us to overcome sin, not to accommodate it. God didn't give us grace to give us permission to do anything we wanted to do. He gave us grace to heal from those things that that grabbed us and strangled us and tripped us up. That's why God gave us grace. Paul says, I've already judged this man. I'm not even with you. I'm with you in spirit, and Jesus is with you in spirit, and so I've already judged this man. And some of you go, no, 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 I know Jesus' teaching. You're not supposed to judge. And that's what the people in Corinth were saying about this man. It's like, well, we're not supposed to judge. Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves. We're not judging. And Paul the apostle says, I've already judged him. So was Paul breaking Jesus' rule? Paul's saying, no, grace is not about accommodating sin. The church is not about accommodating sin. Grace is about restoring people who have been caught in sin, tripped up by it. Paul says, I've already judged it. And he would ask us for ourselves. You don't have to worry about other people around you. I'm not even asking you to worry about other people around you. I'm just asking you to, ask this question. I'm asking myself this question. Where in my life am I accommodating sin? I'd like you to ask the same question for yourself. Where in your life are you accommodating sin? Where in my life am I accommodating sin? Where am I making room for it Where am I adapting to it? Paul says for the Corinthians, this sexual immorality in this one man is a place they were accommodating sin. Now, he did say it's not the only place. There are other places where they were accommodating sin. There's other places where we accommodate sin, too. Go down to chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says this, if if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? He said, some of you have disputes, some of you have lawsuits, and you're actually taking those lawsuits to to secular courts. You you got these problems with one another, and you can't even resolve it among yourselves. You go down to verse 7, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have already been completely defeated, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. There are various ways we get tripped up by sin. Sometimes it just means we have a broken relationship with someone else in the church family. We cheat one another and we do wrong to one another. We create conflict with one another. And how in my life am I accommodating sin? Sometimes we highlight things like sexual sin. We go, that, those are the only ones that matter. But there are other sins that intrigue us as well. There are other sins that captivate us as well. And Paul writes a list of those in verse 9. He says this, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We make lists sometimes of sins. Everybody makes their own list. And then we judge the people whose sins don't match up to our list. We usually make, sins that accommodate our, we make lists that accommodate our sins, but then we make other lists for other people and expect, we expect them to live up to that list. So sometimes sexual issues are the ones that are at the top of the list, sexual immorality at the top of the list. But then he says, well, idolatry could be right there. Some of us struggle with idolatry. We don't have a little statue on our mantle that we pray to, but we've got other things that we worship. Homosexuality, for sometimes for evangelical Christians, are like, oh, that's the big one. It's like, that's the big, bold-heading one, and everything else is in fine print, really small. Why is it that we put one big one up at the top, and we go, that one doesn't really affect me, so that must be the bad one. But some of these other ones, they really affect me. But I accommodate them. Sexual immorality. The practice of homosexuality, greed, cheating, they're all on the same list. And we accommodate some, we don't accommodate others. What Paul's trying to get us to think through is not to accommodate any of those, not to make those com- any of those comfortable for us. In our own lives, stealing, cheating, gluttony is not even on this list, but it's on other lists. We go on accommodating sin. Now, my question for us, and I think Paul's question for us in the end, is not, is not to come to the place where we go, let's judge all these sins. That's not the goal. The goal is to help people, to help us move beyond accommodating them in our own lives so that our life would be different, that our life would be changed because we don't accommodate sin in our life. So Paul says, let me just tell you how to do this. Let me walk this through with you. So over in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, here's what the apostle apostle Paul says. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Here's an amazing little statement from our God. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Because sometimes when temptation comes into your life, don't you sometimes go, oh, this one's really strong. Nobody's ever suffered temptation like I am. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Every temptation you've ever suffered is common. And everyone comes with some common grace from God's faithfulness. Everyone temptation is sort of like a chemistry project i'm not a chemist but my future son-in-law is studying to become one he's a very smart young man evidenced by the fact that he asked my daughter to marry him (laughs) so he got his bachelor's degree in biology he's getting his master's degree in chemistry He's a smart young man, right? And his whole deal in his master's program, trying to do his thesis and develop his project and all that, it's all about testing compounds to see how they react. That's exactly what temptation does. It it tests us to see how we will react to it, how we will respond to it. And sometimes a temptation comes into our life and it kind of interacts with our soul and we go, oh, I'm going to do it. Temptation goes, oh, I just want to know how you're going to react. Every time temptation comes into our life, it's an automatic opportunity to see God's faithfulness. You ever wonder if God is with you, if he walks with you? You know, does, it ever, does it God ever seem quiet? It's like, oh, God, where are you? I need you right now. And God just seems quiet or distant or whatever. Every time you are tempted by sin... It is an automatic opportunity to see God at work in your life every single time because every temptation that comes into your life, without exception, comes with a God provided escape route. There is never a temptation that has come into your life in which God did not provide a way out of it. God is faithful. One of my favorite old songs of the faith is called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's all about God's faithfulness, and he is always faithful. It's not like God is faithful 90% of the time. If God is faithful 90% of the time, you can abandon him, because he's not worth following. If I'm faithful to you 90% of the time, please hang with me, because you know I'm not all the way there yet, but God is all the time faithful, and every time a temptation comes into your life, he gives you a way out. You just have to look for it. Our problem is we don't want to look for it. I have been on a lot of airplanes in the last year. I'm, I'm uh, becoming less and less a fan of flying. Those are, sometimes those flights are like long hauls in just one little skinny chair. You know? I don't worry about leg room. But, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's long sometimes, You're right or whatever. So I, I don't know, but I've, I've kind of learned the drill. Some of you fly a lot. You fly a lot more than I do, and you sort of know the drill. Every time you get on a plane, they're going to give you a speech flight attendant, the head flight attendant, whoever, they're going to give you a speech, right? And, like, so tonight I'm getting on a plane. I get to go to spring training baseball games uh, starting tomorrow. So, I know, it's nice. It's, I know, sorry. I didn't mean to throw that out there for you because now some of you are tempted to um, jealousy. So, sorry. God <laughs> provides a way out. So, I'm getting to that. So, anyway, so you get on a plane, right, and, and I'm going to fly over the Mojave Desert, you know, and they always give you that little speech, like, in the unlikely event of a water landing, it's like, I'm in the Mojave Desert. I'm not going to land on water, Whatever. So then after that, they always do this thing where they go, this plane is equipped with six exits. Two in the front, two over the wings, and two in the rear. Look around and find the exits closest to you. In some cases, they may be behind you. They always say that. And you can tell the people who fly seldom. And you can tell the people that fly often. People that fly often got their nose in a magazine or in their iPad or whatever, and they're just not paying attention. The people that are new at this thing or they don't fly very it's like, where are they? Where are they? Well, I got to have, where's the exit? I got to know what the exit is. They're looking around, and all they're doing is the airline, they're just giving you a little favor. They want you to find the door before you crash. <laughs> they don't say it that way. <laughs> but isn't that exactly what they're doing? What do you think God wants? When when Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except those that are common to mankind. And God is faithful and will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape. Don't you think God is just coming alongside of you in his great compassionate love and faithfulness and saying, find the exit before you crash? Because temptation is going to make you crash. Every one of us knows way too many stories of people who have succumbed to temptation and didn't find the exit and crashed. God says, look around. There will be an exit. There will be an escape route. You do not have to go down this road but you are wise to look for the escape route before the crash comes. God always provides a way of escape. Whatever the temptation is. There are sexual temptations. There are financial temptations. There are relational temptations. There are all kinds of temptations around us. There are food temptations. And all the time, God provides a way of escape. Last Thursday, we were having a staff meeting. You would think that among, among a bunch of Christians, a bunch of you know, Christian leaders, that there wouldn't be a lot of temptation in the room, right? So I showed up at a staff meeting over in the block last Thursday, and we had like 14 or so of our, of our ministry leaders together to kind of talk through what's coming up next and those kinds of things. And, and my assistant, Cindy, decided it would be a really you know, nice meeting to bring donuts, so I walked in the room. I was completely unsuspecting. I, you know, we don't usually have donuts in these meetings. So I'm unsuspecting. I walk in. There's two pink boxes on the table. I know what those are. And I just casually was happening to walk by, and I, I, I noticed that there was a, uh, an apple fritter in the donut box, and then I saw Sean Miller grab it and eat it. I'm like, "Come on, man! I, I love apple fritters. Those are those are like the best donuts ever." I just, I'm. Now I want one. And I, 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 there was another one in the box. Now I didn't want to seem too gluttonous or anything. So I just, I I had to step out of the room for a minute and to get ready for the meeting. So I stepped out, came back in and was talking to another one of our staff members. And I noticed that the apple fritter was still in the box. And uh, I thought, I'm not going to have the whole thing. I'm just going to have half, half a fritter is better than no fritter at all. So I picked up a napkin, I was going to break it in half, and I'm talking to this other staff member, and I thought, oh, I better have two napkins, because, you know, you don't want to put your finger on one half, you know, so I'm trying to be nice about it, and got these two napkins, and I'm talking to this other staff member, and when I looked back, the fritter was gone! Was, and I looked up, and there's Doug Roush, with a fritter in his mouth! And now I realize, looking back, God always provides him a way of escape! Doug (laughs) Roush with the fritter. (laughs) So I had a chocolate-covered (laughs) old-fashioned. I had the whole thing. There goes my gluttony for the day. Man, I had the whole thing. And I was only going to have half, and I missed the exit. Now, One donut probably was not going to change my life. But if you struggle with gluttony, you ought to know what the exit plan is. If you struggle with sexual temptation, you ought to know what the exit plan is. If you struggle with greed and financial temptation, you ought to know what the exit plan is. The challenge is sometimes we don't even, we're so accommodating to sin That we don't even know what the sins are that tempt us. We don't even acknowledge it in the mirror. I mean, for example, I'm tempted by greed. I don't I don't really think of me that way. But I'm I like shiny things. I like new shiny things. I like new shiny things with power. Like them. I have to guard against money temptations in my life, greedy temptations in my life. I I am tempted by food. And some of you, I know you you go you you don't look like it. it's like, that's because I learned this one a long time ago. It's like I have to I have to watch for that exit door. In fact, I. Now that I'm confessing, I could, every one of those temptations grabs me. And I've had to learn in my life to find the exit route. I'm still learning to look for the exits when I get on the plane. There are things that God has given in your life where there are exit routes attached. Every temptation that comes into your life, there is an exit route attached One of my food temptations was solved by my wife. I have a fondness for ice cream. Peppermint, particularly, which they've had in the store for like six months this time. It's like, it's fantastic. (laughs) Years ago, my wife bought these bowls. We had some friends come over uh, a while ago, and we were having dessert together, ice cream together, and They looked at our bowls, and my friend called it. She said, wow, you have glutton-free bowls. (laughs) Yeah, we've got these little tiny dishes. You can only smash so much ice cream into that dish before it's full. You know, maybe maybe God's exit ramp for you is in the cupboard. Or maybe the problem, maybe the temptation for you is not in the cupboard at all. It's not in the pantry at all. Maybe the temptation for you is on a computer screen. There is a little exit route called the exit button. It's usually in the top right corner, sometimes maybe the top left corner. It's a little X with a square around it. Click it. Learn to, You should practice clicking that. Men, some of you guys, you should practice clicking that. Because you get down the road in your computer in some places you ought not to be. And that temptation is testing you to see how you will react to it. And God has provided a way of escape. And if you would look in advance before the plane crashes it would be to your advantage. Maybe it's financial temptations for you. This whole project we did with Next 10, and we get pushed back, you know, on those kind of things, like, oh, you're talking about money again? It's like, you know one of the advantages, this was not part of why we did this, but you know one of the advantages of doing a campaign like Next 10? When I unleash generosity in my life, it breaks the grip of greed in my heart. There's an advantage. That's an escape route for me. If you find that greed is a challenge for you, then pry your little fingers off those dollars and give it to somebody else because that process is an escape route that God has made for you to release greed from your heart. Sexual temptations. For those of you who are married particularly, God has already given you an escape route. It's called marriage. Make that marriage the healthiest it can possibly be because that's a tool, an escape route from sexual temptation. Every temptation that comes along is common to mankind and God has provided a way of escape faithfully every time if we will use it. What in your life, where in your life Are you accommodating sin? When you're accommodating sin, it is killing you. God loves you so much, he says, I don't want you to be there. Find the escape route. And use it. (coughs) Father in heaven, I pray for us today. Lord, you are so filled with grace. Not to allow your church to accommodate sin, but to allow us to get beyond it. To allow us to be free from it. Lord, I'm so grateful to you. I'm so grateful that in this regard, we get to see your faithfulness. Every single day when temptation comes, we get to see your faithfulness. But our eyes need to be open. Our heart needs to be open to you. So I pray by your spirit and by your power and by your grace, that you would open our eyes to the path that you have to get us out of it. And Lord, make us righteous. Not not just through what Jesus has done for us, although that's that's certainly the beginning and, and ending of everything we have in righteousness. But Lord, let us live righteously as well. Let us live out this redemption that you've given to us. And change us. And make us whole. And make us holy. Lord, we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.